afternoon, which comes from Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Romans 1, 18, and we'll read through chapter 2, verse 5. This is in connection with our catechism reading, Lord's Day 4, which speaks about God's judgment against sin. So we'll read Romans 1, verse 18, through 2, verse 5. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, nor give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things." Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgments will be revealed. So far from God's word. 
As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 5, stanzas 3 and 4. Our catechism reading this afternoon comes from Lord's Day 4, which is on page 520 of your books of, your books of praise. <clears throat> There the question in Lord's Day 4 is, But does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? No, for God so created man that he was able to do it. But man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with our original sin as well as our actual sins. Therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment, both now and eternally, as he has declared, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But is God not also merciful? God, God is indeed merciful, but He is also just. His justice requires that sin committed against the Most High Majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. So far from the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ. The words of our text in Romans 1 tell us that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But most people, at least here in Canadian society, most people would not agree with that statement. A few years ago, the National Post did a study that showed that more than half of Canadians believe in heaven and yet less than a third of them believe in hell. Where does that belief come from? Well, most likely it's not something that they've reasoned out, but it's a comfortable belief to have. And among, even among that third of Canadians that, that, that have seen enough evil in the world that they do believe in a hell, even most of them are still convinced that they're not bad enough to go to that place. Most people, and it really doesn't matter whether you're talking to so-called religious people in church with spotless track records or college students on campus or even the inmates at the local prison, most people who believe in hell believe that it's for people that are to some degree or another worse than themselves. So they say something like, well, hey, I'm not perfect, but after all, who is? I don't think God would send me to hell because there are people way worse than me. And hell, hell is for those people. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit this, this kind of thinking does creep into the church and perhaps even into most of our minds from time to time. But again, where, where do we get this idea from? What makes us think that we are average or maybe slightly better than average and that God would never punish average people like us? What's well, amazing, but the truth is, most people are willing to believe that without ever once consulting Scripture or any other source, simply because they don't like the idea of a God 
who might punish them, who puts a price on their sin. But then, of course, we should ask ourselves, how often does what we want things to be correspond to the way that they really are? Can we make something true just by wishing that it were true? If I say, I don't believe in hell, does that make hell any less real? Well, obviously the answer is, no, it doesn't. And so then, what do I stand to gain by deceiving myself on a question like this? So many Canadians deceive themselves on this question. And yet, what do we stand to gain? Eternal life and death is at stake. Well, our text is clear enough. It says, again, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. So according to Scripture, God is not making any exceptions. He's not grading us on a curve. He will punish all ungodliness and unrighteousness. He puts a price on all sin. So then this afternoon, I preach to you the Word of God as we summarize it in our catechism. And we'll use the following theme. In His justice, God punishes sin. And we'll see first that He has every right to punish it. And then second, we'll look at that honest biblical truth that he certainly will punish our sin. And finally, we'll see that because of his justice, he has no other choice. He has to punish sin. And although this is a very heavy topic, we certainly will end with some words of hope. Let's first deal with the idea that, that uh, hey, nobody's perfect, that people say, and, and by which they mean, well, God can't expect me to be perfect either, and he can't punish me if I fail from time to time. That's the same idea that the catechism gets at with, with that question. Isn't God doing man an injustice by requiring of man what man can't do? If nobody lives up to God's standard, is it really fair for God to punish me for failing? Is it right for God to hold us to a standard that nobody lives up to? Well, Scripture teaches very clearly that it is right for God to do so. He refuses to make exceptions for us because by nature we were created able to keep his law. Adam and Eve were created in God's image and we're told in Genesis 1 they were created very good. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, we could get into a philosophical discussion about where does evil come from? Where do my evil choices come from? What happens deep inside my will when I will to do something that is sinful? But at the end of the day, those kinds of questions don't matter. It's criminals that ask those kinds of questions. Who can I blame for the choices that I've made? How can I make myself to be the victim here? That kind of reasoning will not do anyone any good on the final day when they have to face their, ju- their judge and maker. God is not mocked. So what we need to understand is that when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, they were perfectly able to resist his temptations, and they chose not to. They followed Satan's advice, and when they did, they themselves of their own free will, deliberately chose to go against God's will. And so they allowed evil into their hearts, and that evil corrupted their entire nature. 
And so here we are, their descendants with the same sinful, fallen nature as them. Sinners beget sinners. We saw this a few weeks ago in Lord's Day 3. And so when we say, well, hey, nobody's perfect, what we're doing is we're saying, God is going to have to change His standard because I'm not able to keep it. And that, that is a very big assumption and it's a wrong assumption. Evil is still evil, and God is not going to call it anything different just because we have all been corrupted by it. What's more, when we, when we say nobody's perfect, we're making, out our, we're making our sin out to be something smaller than what it really is. Or if we say, well, I was born this way, what we're claiming is that Our sin, my sin, is somehow different from Adam and Eve's sin. As if, well, they chose to sin, but hey, I can't help it anymore. And the reality is that's simply not true. Yes, we have become addicted to sin. And in that sense, yes, we have lost our free will. But still, just like Adam and Eve, at the end of the day, we know what is right And we still choose not to do it. That's what Paul emphasizes in Romans Romans 1. If you look at verse 21, he says, Because although they, and, and here he's talking about sinners in general, so you could say we, although we knew God, we did not glorify Him as God, nor were we thankful, but became futile in our thoughts, and our foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, we human beings know the right thing to do, and we choose not to do it. Our, our addiction to sin doesn't excuse our choices. And even if our consciences aren't functionally any longer, even if our consciences don't accuse us when they should be, it still doesn't excuse us. They only do that because they've become calloused to sin. They've become used to our willful choice to sin. And so at the end of the day, we don't gain anything by trying to blame our first parents, Adam and Eve. What is right is as plain to us as it was to them. And just like them, we ourselves choose not to do it. And we listen instead to, do, to the voices that tell us to do what is wrong. We can point to the origin of our sinfulness and where our evil choices are coming from. But at the end of the day, it does nothing to make them any less offensive to God. And in fact, we, we know this even from our experience in day-to-day life. Most criminals, most drug abusers, most negligent parents, most abusive most abusers, and and you can name it, any sin, you can always point to some influence that led them to become the kind of people that they became. Bullies are often bullied at home. Abusers were often once abused themselves. Drug traffickers are often pressured into joining those gangs by others. But here's the point. None of that takes away their own guilt, and especially before God. In fact, we can see Adam and Eve using the same kind of excuse in in Genesis 3. Adam blamed Eve for his sin, and in a sense he was right. Eve really did deceive him and led him into sin. And Eve, in turn, she she points to Satan, and, and to a certain extent she's right. Satan did deceive her. But the point is, all three made a deliberate decision to sin, and you'll notice all three are each cursed for their choice. So we can blame Adam and Eve or our parents or someone else for our sinfulness, 
but it doesn't gain us anything before the face of God, because God knows he didn't make us that way. And so every time we sin, we make the same choice that Adam and Eve made. Yes, it's true, we've become addicted to sin. Yes, our natures are profoundly corrupted, but that doesn't mean that our choices aren't ours anymore. If we acknowledge Adam and Eve's guilt, we have to also acknowledge our own guilt before God. And so Paul, you see this when he begins to describe the condition of the world. He doesn't focus on some philosophical discussion about where all that evil is coming from, but on what our condition is today before God, because that's what matters. He describes that in verse 28 and following. He says, And since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled, and notice he's talking again about the way things are now. They were filled with, with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then he says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even give approval to those who practice them. So Paul says, we know God's righteous judgment, that those who sin deserve to die. We may not like that righteous judgment, and we might foolishly decide that I disagree with that judgment, as if that would do us any good, but we do know his judgment. And yet, apart from his grace, we not only continue to do those same things, but even approve of those who practice them. So this excuse that, well, hey, nobody's perfect, it holds no water at all. It makes no difference that nobody is perfect. The point is, we all know what is right, and we all choose not to do it. It doesn't matter who sinned first for things to end up the way they've ended up. What matters before God is that we are sinners even now, and even though we know full well that those who do such things deserve death. No matter how many others commit the exact same sins, we will still have to answer to God for our sins. He's not going to lower his perfect standard, even if every single person that ever lives falls short of it. He has every right to punish them for their sin. And he certainly will punish them for their sin. That's our second point. God certainly will punish sin. And the truth is, most of us, we already know that to a certain degree. Even unbelievers know that when they encounter horrible injustices, things that they they cannot ever forget, they speak of karma or or some ethereal concept of, of justice in the afterlife that people will ultimately get what they deserve. And we do this when we see other people's sins, but then the reality is we're, we're experts in failing to see the same thing when it comes to our own sin. So Paul says in chapter 2, verse 2, we know that the judgment of God is according to truth, or it's, it's correct against those who practice such things. We know that God will judge, and we know that certain sins deserve God's punishment in the afterlife. 
But Paul says in verse 3 now, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge others who practice such things and yet do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape God's judgment? God's word is so deeply incisive, isn't it? And if we're honest, we know exactly what Paul is talking about. We demonstrate all the time that we know perfectly well that there is a moral law, that certain things are objectively wrong. Every time we condemn someone else, we stand as witnesses that there is a right and a wrong, and that we are not in charge of those categories. And yet we so often act, don't we, as if we are above the law. When it comes to to me, then I assume the role of lawmaker, judge, and jury, and there's a thousand reasons why I ought not to be punished. We're such foolish people that we can be, assuming that we can acquit ourselves before God's throne room. Who are we to assume that our opinion counts for anything at all in God's court? We forget that we're only mere men, as Paul reminds us in verse 3. We don't make the law. It's made already, and we are under it. And so Paul again asks in verse 3, Do you think, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? And the answer is, of course not. There are no appeals courts in God's throne room. His judgments are already perfectly just. He doesn't need our opinions to nuance his judgments. And so the point is this. Unless we can accustom ourselves now already to sitting before God's righteous judgment and silencing ourselves before his word, unless we can do that now, we will find ourselves on the last day being silenced by him as we futilely offer our opinions on why he ought not to judge us the way that he does. To live that way now, to make those excuses for ourselves now, is only to offer up and, or store up, that is, store up wrath against ourselves when his judgments will be revealed against us. And God's wrath is terrible indeed. It's as terrible as it is eternal. In Matthew 13, the Lord Jesus, who who talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible, he tells us that at the end of the age, the Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil, and they will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Elsewhere, Jesus describes hell as an experience of outer darkness, utter loneliness, and distance from God and other people. In Revelation, it's described as so terrible that that everyone facing it will long for death, for rocks to fall on them and crush them. And in yet another place, it's compared to a lake of fire. And moreover, it's eternal. Jesus warns his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, because it's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Again, in Revelation, we read the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There's no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. 
There's no notion at all that anyone can ever eventually pay their way out. There's no end to the suffering. After endless years, it's still only the beginning. This is one of the clearest doctrines in Scripture, even though it's so controversial in our day. This is the honest view of God's wrath against sin, which he tells us about in his own word. This is the just and righteous judgment against sin. And we are assured in in unequivocal terms that it will come to those who, who live in sin. God's word is not at all ambiguous or uncertain on this topic. He leaves it abundantly clear so that no one can say that they were not warned. As our catechism then teaches us, he is terribly angry with our original sin as well as our actual sins. And so he will punish them with a just judgment both now and eternally. Because of his justice, he will not allow this disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished. And here's the third point then, that God has to punish sin. God has no other choice but to punish sin. And something that many of us might have asked ourselves, why does God have to punish my sin? Why can't God overlook it, especially considering how terrible the punishment is? Well, the answer has to do with God's justice. God's justice, it's one of his essential attributes, which is to say it's part of who he is. He can't let go of it, and he cannot violate his He cannot violate his justice without violating his own essential character, without denying himself. It would go against his own nature to leave injustice alone. And because we're made in God's image, we do have some sense of this justice as human beings. We know that it would be wrong to leave violence and abuse unpunished, to refuse to punish rape or or even something like genocide. Because we're made in God's image, we feel that it violates human dignity to leave such things unpunished, to let such people walk free. And so just like we see Paul saying, we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. We know that such things are not just relative evil, you know, where what's what's right for you is right for you and what's wrong for you is wrong for you. No, they're objectively, truly evil, deserving of punishment. And yet at the same time, after the fall into sin, that inner sense of justice is profoundly corrupted. We don't want to walk around knowing that God's judgment against our sins is worthy of eternal punishment. And so everyone instead considers that the people who deserve God's judgment are are the really bad people. Somewhere in that category worse than themselves. But it wouldn't be appropriate for God to punish my sin. This is part of what Paul refers to in, in Romans 1 verse 18 where he talks about men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. We recognize that absolute evil in others and yet we fail to see it in ourselves. Just like almost any criminal ever convicted, we insist that the punishment is undeserved or it's disproportionate to the crime. And it's only natural that we feel that way, that God ought to overlook our sin because we are the sinners. And so as sinners ourselves and and the recipients of that punishment, we have a very, very deeply biased sense of justice. 
But just like any criminal, we're not in a position to determine what the appropriate sentence ought to be. But then let's, let's push the question further anyways. Is the punishment disproportionate to the crime? Is an eternity of suffering a fair punishment for a lifetime of godlessness and wickedness? Well, the only answer that you ever get from Scripture is yes. That is the punishment that God gives. He has declared that sin is worthy of eternal death. And here's the thing. His is the only opinion that counts. Not only is he the creator, but he's the only one who's not guilty of sin himself. Which means he is the only one who's qualified to make that kind of judgment. We're fallen human beings. We're no longer sensitized to the seriousness of our sin, committed, as the, as the catechism says, against the majesty of God. And so he tells us, What is the right punishment for sin? And we can either resist that and we can try and correct God with our our fallen three-pound brains, or we can accept it and then look to him for a way out of that righteous judgment. And so that's how we'll finish this afternoon's sermon. What do we do with the knowledge of God's judgment against our sin? There's only one thing we can do, and that is to look earnestly to God himself for a way to be reconciled. If scripture is clear about God's wrath, it's equally clear about the fact that Christ bore the wrath of God against the whole human race so that we could be restored to him. So that everyone who honestly acknowledges God's judgment against him and submits to him as the only righteous judge can also then look to him for mercy. Now that does mean we must, we must admit our sinfulness before God. If we don't submit to his judgments, or if we try and hold reservations or counter-arguments in our hearts, just in case we might need them later on the day of judgment, then biblically speaking, we cannot say yet that we have truly repented. And we cannot possibly claim to be trusting in his mercy. Instead, our response needs to be like David's response in Psalm 51. Against you I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you judge and justified when, when you judge. That should be our confession. Repentance begins in acknowledging God's righteous judgment against us. We can't believe in Christ and at the same time have reservations about God's judgment against us. We can't believe in Christ and yet be unwilling to confess to God that you are absolutely right to condemn us and that you would do no wrong at all even if you sent us into hell right now and left us there forever. We cannot have counter-arguments against God's judgments. The way to God's mercy begins in acknowledging our sinfulness and God's righteousness in condemning us. But then if we do acknowledge God's judgment against us, then we may also turn to Christ, the Savior whom God has sent, And he he has promised us, just as clearly as he warns us of hell, that everyone who turns to him in honest repentance and trust will not face the wrath of God that he or she deserves. 
because Christ has gone there in our place and paid that price for us. So he calls to us in John 7, verse 37, if anyone thirsts, and there he means thirsting for eternal life in the face of every reason to believe that you won't get it. Whoever thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He promises us, all whom the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. As we saw this morning also in 1 John 1, if we claim we have not sinned, we make out God to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have an advocate with the Father. This is also from 1 John. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, and He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so, brothers and sisters, let us put all of our hope, all of our confidence, without reservation, in that Savior, because His promises are true, and they're sure, and in Him is all the righteousness and salvation that we will ever need. Again, He says, All the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So, brothers and sisters, confess your sins to him and to one another, and repent from them, and turn to him in faith, and you will find salvation. Amen. Let's respond by singing from Psalm 32, stanza.